Good morning, it's uh, Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. It's 17 minutes to nine. This is James Ross. And in your money today, Carolyn Wright finds out how much of an issue changing demographics are for a country's economy. Uh, good morning, Carolyn. Good morning. There's been a lot of talk recently about how changing demographics could be impacting mainland China's economy. But should we really be focusing so closely on demographics? I'm joined now by Stefan Angrich, who's Associate Director and Senior Economist at Moody's Analytics, who has been researching this. Thanks for speaking to us today, Stefan. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about how important population growth is in terms of its role in driving economic gains for a country. So population growth is one of the key factors that do drive economic growth. But the message from our analysis is that it's not everything. So, of course, if you have a larger population, that means you have more people who can be economically active, which means you have more people producing output. So that grows your economy. But what countries really care about at the end of the day is productivity growth. So for each person to be able to produce more individually. That's the kind of growth that, at the end of the day, underpins higher living standards. That's what raises income levels. So that's what countries aim for. The way this can happen is through two things, either through capital accumulation. So you use machinery to be able to produce more than you would on your own. That's straightforward. Or you can generate knowledge gains that help you become more effective at what you're doing. So you just become more, more skilled at what you might be doing regularly. So again, that's what countries aim for, right? It's not just like throwing people at the economy and hoping that will expand GDP. It's actually becoming more productive. And that's very hard. Unfortunately, um, there are not that many countries in, in recent history that have successfully lifted themselves up in this way. The uh, number of cases of economies that have gone from low income level to really high income level is fairly limited, but we have a good number here in Northeast Asia. So Japan, Korea, uh, Taiwan in the last century, and China is, of course, is now on its way to to replicate that. Those are economies that have not gotten stuck in the so-called middle income trap, but they actually worked their way towards high high income status um, in this way. I was going to ask you a little bit more about those specific examples that you just brought up. So what did happen with their economies? We uh, looked essentially at what's driven growth in these economies in the past, right? And what we found is that it was the accumulation of capital and know-how, so upskilling that enabled growth here. Of course, these things don't happen in a vacuum. Um, they were enabled by effective policies and the ability to export. So um, a global trading system that um, allowed these economies to produce goods that they could then ship abroad and, and generate uh, economic gains at home. In other words, what mattered most for their developmental gains was not the size of their population, but rather um, how they put their populations to work. So again, coming back to this point about how it's not all about demographics, right? It's about how you uh, how you put your, your, your population to work. At some point, of course, that sort of growth inevitably slows. Um, it's very easy to grow fast when you're catching up. But inevitably, um, as soon as you do catch up and as soon as you do reach high income status and you now become the producer of goods that are at the forefront, at the high end of the value chain, then growth, of course, slows. And that can accompany demographic growth, which can amplify the demographic change, uh, your population shrinking, which can amplify the slowdown. But again, it's important to emphasize that that is not the primary cause here. And you can keep growing even with a shrinking population. What are you seeing in terms of what's happening in mainland China now? In mainland China, the debate is very focused on demographics. And part of the point of this research that we've done here 
is to emphasize that that's not really the key challenge facing China right now. China right now is going through an economic slowdown that has a lot to do with a property market crisis. That property market crisis is bleeding into other parts of the economy. So, for example, it's affecting households negatively because households hold a lot of their wealth in the form of property. It's affecting uh, corporates negatively because uh, construction activity is stalling. It affects the financial system negatively because it leads to an overhang of debt and non-performing loans. And it affects local governments negatively because their income stagnates when the property sector stagnates. The deeper issue here, though, is weak demand. So China is an economy that for a long time grew by way of exports. And when that became less feasible, growth started to rely more on domestic investment and particularly investment in the property sector. So that's took on its own dynamic. And over time, they started to build up off a lot of like excess capacity. It's now grown into an overhang of debt. So you need to find a way of resolving that while at the same time strengthening a domestic demand. So that's really the key challenge facing China's economy. How do you put a floor under demand while at the same time resolve that leverage issue that you have at the property market? Let's look at what happens if you do overemphasize demographics. Can policy mistakes be made as a result? And, and how can that be avoided? I would agree that uh, the overemphasis of demographics and other supply side factors does run the risk of skewing policy away from effective demand management. Of course, demographics is always important. You always want to think about the long run trajectory on your economy, but that should not come at the expense of managing things in the near term. If we look at the example of Japan, for example, Japan slowed drastically in the 1990s after its own property market and asset price bubble burst. And at the time, there was a lot of focus on the supply side and policymakers tried to strengthen the supply side to get the economy growing again. That delayed necessary fiscal and monetary action that focused more on the demand problem at hand, however. So the key here really is, is to recognize that demand is, is important. And um, in, in many ways, you need to shift to a new model. It's not just as easy as doubling down on the old growth drives. You really need to think about what's going to sustain your economy in the long run. Of course, that's hard to do when the old model has been so successful at driving the economic gains. So it's easy to look at all of this from a high level and say, you know, we should just be doing it differently. But when you're there on the ground making these decisions, um, these sorts of things can be harder to do. But it's nonetheless crucial because growth in the future will be harder to come by if you just let the economy get stuck in this state of a demand shortage that can also hurt the long run on your economy. So the short run and the long run, they're never independent from one another. So what changes can help offset any economic drag that is caused by demographic issues? From an economic point of view, the key issue with a demographic drag with a shrinking population is really that it means you have a smaller potential workforce. So you have fewer people who are economically active, which makes it harder to grow, right? The three things that you can do to address that. Number one and number two are the factors we spoke about. So you can try and step up capital spending, investment spending. And number two is you can try and generate knowledge gains through R&D, et cetera. Number three is increasing labor participation. And of course, some of these three things, they're easier than others. So let's maybe just go through them quickly one by one. Investment spending. There's opportunities for economies throughout Asia, including China, to invest spending in new technologies that help us fight climate change, that help us to decarbonize. That's potential for investment that would reap uh, important long-run benefits that would increase the efficiency of the economy. So that should sustain growth. 
In terms of know-how, you could invest in R&D, as mentioned, you could invest in education. But the issue here, again, is the one we touched upon earlier. The further you're towards the top end of the value chain, the harder it becomes to generate new innovation gains that come from new knowledge. It's, again, much, much easier to catch up when you're starting from a low level and you're, you're emulating what others have done before you. But when you're at the top end of the value chain and you're already a producer of advanced semiconductors, advanced machinery, etc., then it just becomes harder to innovate your way forward. So that brings us to the third point, labor participation. Labor participation is one of the things you could strengthen to offset the demographic drag. Your population might get older, but if you find a way to bring more people into the workforce, people that have been traditionally excluded from professional careers in one way or another, then that can help you continue to grow, right? So that might involve breaking down barriers for women to work. It might include strengthening immigration. And um, these are policies that Japan has followed and has had some success with, even though um, arguably there's still some further room for improvement. But again, just to bring this back to the point that we talked about at the top, remember these are supply side solutions, right? And the issue facing China right now is not the supply side. China has a lot of people to produce output. What it doesn't have enough of is consumers who are consuming what is being produced. So that is really where the focus should be in our review. Great to get your insights today. Stefan Angrick, Associate Director and Senior Economist at Moody's Analytics. Thank you. Thanks, Stefan, and thanks, Carolyn. 